Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Sabre Springs is a planned, high-end community in San Diego, California. It's a typical residential community where many people go to raise their families within close proximity to employment and good schools. Around 9,000 people were living in Sabre Springs in February 2002 when something destroyed the community's perceived serenity. Before then, parents had no issues with letting their children play in the neighborhood or leaving a window unlocked in the two-story tracked homes. Children went to school and came home to play with friends, cycling their bikes past neighbors' houses, never aware of the danger lurking behind closed doors until it was too late. Hello, listeners. I'm your new host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 34 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. On Friday, February 1st, 2002, the Van Dam family, which consisted of 36-year-old Damon, 39-year-old Brenda, and their three children, 9-year-old Derek, 7-year-old Danielle, and 5-year-old Dylan, ate pizza together at their home on Mountain Pass Road. Damon had planned to take their oldest son, Derek, to Big Bear that night to go snowboarding for the weekend, but he decided to stay until the following morning so Brenda could go out to meet some friends at a bar in Poway. Brenda's friends Denise Kemmel and Barbara Easton arrived at the house around 8 p.m., and the women smoked in the garage for a while. During that time, Denise got a phone call, so she opened the side door and stepped outside to get better cell reception before coming back in. But she did not lock the door behind her. Brenda and her friends left for the bar in Brenda's Ford Excursion as she had been chosen as the designated driver for the night. Brenda spent the night drinking with her friends and playing pool at Dad's Cafe and Steakhouse. Damon and the boys played video games while Danielle sat at the kitchen table, writing in her journal. Just after 10 p.m., Damon told the kids to go upstairs and get ready for bed, and he followed them up about 10 minutes later to check on them. He looked in on the boys and said goodnight before entering Danielle's room. Her nightlight had gone out, so he opened her blinds a bit to let the streetlights brighten the room for her. Damon later said, She liked to read to her brother before she went to bed. She read to him, and she was tucked in, and I gave her a goodnight kiss. After tucking Danielle in, he left each of the children's bedroom doors open slightly, so he could hear them before he went back downstairs and watched television. After half an hour, Damon made his way up, going to bed with the family's six-month-old Weimariner puppy, Layla. Layla had chewed her dog bed earlier that evening, so Damon had put the bed and the loose stuffing in the laundry room. 
Damon closed the door to the bedroom to stop the puppy from getting out and going to the toilet somewhere else in the house, while he watched television in bed before drifting off to sleep. Layla began to whine around 1.45 a.m., so he brought her downstairs to go out to the toilet and left her downstairs as he knew the bar would be closed soon and Brenda would be home. When Brenda returned to the house with her friends Denise, Barbara, Rich, and Keith at around 2 a.m., she noticed a light on their home alarm monitor was flashing. After looking around the house, she saw the garage door was open. Damon had woken up and joined them downstairs to talk and eat some pizza. Brenda closed the doors to the children's bedrooms so they wouldn't be awoken by the noise of the adults talking downstairs. After around 20 minutes, their friends left, and Brenda and Damon got ready for bed. They let Layla into Derek's room so she could sleep on the lower bunk of his bed before they went to sleep. At one point during the night, Damon woke up and noticed a light on the alarm monitor was flashing again. He got out of bed and went downstairs where he felt a cold breeze in the hallway. He walked to the back of the house to find that the sliding patio door was open about six to ten inches. In a sleepy haze, he shut the door, thinking that one of their friends had left it open, checking the house before he went back to bed, utterly oblivious to the fact that something had happened that would change the family's life forever. The following morning, Brenda went straight to the kitchen to get breakfast ready while she waited for the two children she was due to babysit to arrive. Damon and the boys were downstairs when the doorbell rang, and the other children joined them in the house. One of the children, an eight-year-old girl, was a friend of Danielle's, so when Danielle hadn't come downstairs by 9.30, Brenda went to wake her. When she went to Danielle's room, she found that her door was open and her bed was empty. Danielle's bedroom was painted in her favorite colors, pink and purple. Her giant green frog was still beside her bed, the stuffed toy she usually snuggled up to each night. Her Barbie dolls and other teddy bears lay on the floor of the room. Typically, her parents might find her enthralled in a make-believe game, but the empty bedroom jolted them into a harsh reality. Danielle's parents had an immediate feeling of despair in the pit of their stomachs as they began to frantically search the house checking under the bed, in closets, in the jacuzzi, and throughout the neighborhood. Damon wondered if she had gotten out of the house while sleepwalking. He raced to the McNally's house next door. The family had only moved in two days earlier, and Danielle had met them the day before when she was selling Girl Scout cookies with her mom. No one had seen the little girl at all. After speaking to their neighbors, Brenda called 911 to report her daughter missing. Brenda told the dispatcher that her seven-year-old daughter was not in her bed, and they could not find her anywhere. She told the dispatcher about the alarm monitor flashing and doors being found open, but she was audibly distressed as she paused to call out to Damon and ask if he had found Danielle. Officers from the San Diego Police Department were dispatched to the house. They began conducting a forensic examination of the scene. The family were instructed to stay elsewhere while officers went through the home. The police couldn't find any sign that someone had broken into the home, but Danielle's parents told them about finding the doors open during the night. Brenda and Damon were beside themselves with worry for their daughter. They didn't hear any noises during the night, so they wondered how Danielle could have vanished from her bed. Neighbors and police officers scoured the area, 
searching in canyons and rural areas near Saber Springs, while helicopters circled overhead to try and locate the little girl. Danielle had been wearing blue pajamas with flowers on them when she went to bed. She was also wearing Mickey Mouse earrings. The seven-year-old was around four foot, eight inches tall, with blonde hair and blue eyes. Brenda said at the time, You think you live in a safe neighborhood, and you wake up one day and your daughter is gone. I just want her back in my arms. Officers conducted door-to-door inquiries, asking neighbors if they had seen or heard anything suspicious the night before. But the neighborhood had been quiet as it usually was. Detectives Keene and Parga began to canvass the neighbors on the street on Sunday morning, and they spoke to everyone, bar the person living in the house on the corner of Mountain Pass and Briar Leaf. Detective Parga told the press, This is a very bizarre case. All I could think about was a little girl being out in the cold last night. Officers spoke with Danielle's teacher and friends from her second grade class at Creekside Elementary School and removed manhole covers to search the storm drains beneath Mountain Pass Road. Purple ribbons were tied to the palm trees that lined the quiet street, a symbol of hope that Danielle would be back home where she belonged. Karen Johnson lived close by and had busied herself tying the ribbons which were Danielle's favorite colors, to trees and signposts. She said, We just want them to know we are thinking about them and praying for her. It's just mind-boggling. It is just very scary to live in the neighborhood and to think this could happen. Because the door had been open in the night, it was believed that Danielle had been abducted, so the FBI were called in, and a command post was set up on the family's street. It seemed inconceivable that something like this could happen to such a typical family. Damon worked for Qualcomm, a multinational corporation that produces software and communications technology. Brenda worked part-time selling textbooks and volunteered at the kids' school and with Danielle's brownie troupe. Their neighbors expressed their concerns that a predator was in the community and their children were too afraid to sleep alone. Diane Allen, who lived up the street, told the San Diego Union-Times, It is every parent's worst nightmare. We slept with our girls. It is hard to explain what happened. That evening, over 200 people attended a candlelight vigil for Danielle at the small playground on Mountain Pass Road. Reverend Josh Acton addressed those in attendance and said, I know you feel a sick emptiness and anger and frustration and helplessness. All we can offer to the family is our love. Flyers bearing Danielle's picture were put up on posts and in local businesses as the search continued. She had just gotten her hair cut to shoulder length, and in the picture, she was wearing a plastic choker-type necklace. Police began to check the records to see if there were any registered sex offenders in the area and went to speak with any offenders they found to live close by. The neighbor who had not been home when the first canvases were conducted had returned by Monday morning. David Westerfield had been away in his RV for the weekend, returning to find the usually tranquil street brimming with people. When the police announced that they believed it was a targeted abduction, they brought in search dogs to check every house in the neighborhood. David Westerfield's house was one of the first 184 properties checked by the K-9 unit. He told the Union Tribune that he had readily agreed to allow the police to walk through his property and RV. The first thing he had done when he learned that his neighbor was missing was check the pool in his backyard to make sure she hadn't fallen in. 
Westerfield said that he had been at the bar in Poway at the same time as Brenda and her friends on the night Danielle went missing and left for his trip early the next morning. Brenda and Damon made a tearful plea for their daughter's safe return. Brenda showed the media a pair of pajamas identical to the ones Danielle had been wearing, explaining that she could not describe the feeling she had when she got up one morning and went into her daughter's room to find Danielle wasn't there. As concerned as the local parents were, the children in Danielle's school were petrified. They asked their parents and teachers if they would be next, and letters of advice were distributed by the school to help caregivers deal with difficult questions their children may have. When David Westerfield returned from his weekend away to a swarm of police officers and reporters, he seemed more than willing to assist the police. Detective Keene had first spoken to Westerfield at his house on February 4th and asked him what he had done that weekend. Westerfield said that he woke up on Saturday morning at around 6.30 a.m. and decided to go to the desert. He drove his Toyota 4Runner SUV to High Valley, where he kept his motorhome, before returning to his house to pack supplies for the weekend. After leaving just before 10 a.m., he noticed his wallet was missing, so he went to Silver Strand near the city of Coronado instead of driving to the desert as he had intended. At Silver Strand, he had filled out the registration form and paid for three nights before parking his motorhome. After a while, one of the park rangers knocked on the door to tell him he had overpaid, but he wasn't sure he had. Westerfield said that he left soon after because the weather was cold and he didn't see any of his friends at the site. He claimed that he made his way back to his house to find his wallet and saw the crowds of reporters and police on the street. After being told that they were looking for Danielle Van Damme, Westerfield said he checked his yard and house in case she had gotten inside, but saw no sign of her, so he went to the storage yard to check his car for his wallet. After finding the wallet in his forerunner, he filled the motorhome with gas and drove back to Glamis, around 160 miles away. Glamis was a desert area full of sand dunes. Westerfield estimated that he arrived around 10, 10.30 p.m., and when he parked, he got stuck in a sand dune and tried in vain to dig himself out. The following morning, a tow truck pulled the vehicle out of the dune, and Westerfield made his way to Superstition Mountain to see what it would be like to camp there with his sons. After driving on to Borrego Springs, Westerfield claimed he got stuck in the sand again and didn't leave until dusk, so by the time he got back to Silver Strand, it was too late to be admitted into the park. He said that he parked across the street to get some sleep before driving to High Valley at around 4 a.m. He thought it would be too early to collect his car, so he just brought the motorhome back to his house. Then he returned to the storage yard and collected his car. Westerfield was asked if he knew the Van Dams. He said he had seen Brenda at the bar in Poway a couple of times, including Friday night, when he recalled she had told him that her husband felt their daughter was growing up too quickly. Westerfield told the detective that Brenda had spoken to him about an upcoming father-daughter dance at the school and how she had bought a new blouse for Danielle. Then he told Detective Keene, I could have sworn she said she had a babysitter. I didn't know her husband was home with the kids. Westerfield said that Danielle and Brenda had come to his house selling Girl Scout cookies a week before, and the kids were, quote, running all over the house. The detectives asked Westerfield if it would be okay to look around his house and vehicles, and he obliged. 
Detective Keene noticed that the inside of Westerfield's home was immaculately clean. The bed in the master bedroom was missing a comforter, but otherwise there was nothing unusual. The forerunner was parked in the garage, and the detective saw that it was also spotless, something that could have been explained by the smell of bleach in the area and an uncoiled hose in the yard. Detectives Keene and Parga went with Westerfield to High Valley to inspect his motorhome. Once again, they saw that his bed was missing a comforter. Despite the cold weather, Westerfield was sweating profusely. As he gestured while he spoke, investigators noticed scratches on his arms and hands. After returning to Westerfield's home, the investigators asked him to come in for questioning and to take a polygraph test. They felt as though his story did not make sense. Westerfield agreed once he was told the results would not be enough to grant an arrest warrant and followed detectives to the station. It was just before 3 p.m. when he began answering a series of questions. After he was asked, did you have anything to do with the disappearance of Danielle Van Dam? And are you personally responsible for Danielle Van Dam's disappearance? The charts showed a probability of deception at 100%. The polygraph examiner told him that he did not pass and, according to the test, he was somehow involved in the disappearance of Danielle Van Dam. When a child goes missing, time is of the utmost importance, and specific allowances are made in police interrogations to allow investigators to question a suspect when they believe there is a life at stake. Danielle had been missing for at least two days, so they questioned Westerfield for nine hours to try and find out what he knew and if Danielle was safe. When he recounted his movements that weekend during the interview, he said, We drove back to Silver Strand. The detectives immediately noticed that he had used the word we to indicate he was not alone, and Westerfield replied that it was just a slip. As Westerfield was being interviewed, one of the lead investigators, Detective Aldridge, applied for a search warrant to collect biological samples from Westerfield and to search his home, car, motorhome, and trailer. Detective Aldridge told Judge Bichant and the district attorney that they believed Danielle had been abducted and informed them that search dogs had displayed considerable interest toward areas in his home. They also had evidence to show that Westerfield had lied when he told police that Danielle had entered his home when she was selling Girl Scout cookies, as Brenda had confirmed that neither she nor the children had gone inside the house or the garage. Brenda also confirmed that she had never spoken to Westerfield about her daughter's clothes or the father-daughter dance. She had only spoken to family members and one neighbor about it. Detective Aldridge had consulted with FBI profilers who said that people involved in abductions often display excessive cooperation and willingness to assist. In cases like this, the profilers said that the offenders are typically males who live close to the family or are acquaintances. It was unlikely to be a stranger abduction because of the risk involved in entering an occupied house, so the perpetrator would need to be familiar with the layout of the victim's home. Westerfield's house, just two doors down, had a very similar structure, and it would not be hard to identify which room belonged to a little girl with the blinds partially open, showing the pink walls inside. As Westerfield was being questioned, Detectives attempted to corroborate his account by calling the park rangers at the Silver Strand camping site. 
Witnesses at the camping grounds described seeing Westerfield's motorhome parked with all of the blinds shut tightly, including across the windshield. The ranger said that when he knocked on the motorhome door, no one answered until he went to walk away. At that point, Westerfield came out and immediately shut the door behind him before insisting that he did not overpay. Shortly after that, Westerfield left, but not before showing an attendant his wallet to bolster his story that he only carried $20 notes, not $50 notes. But Westerfield had told detectives that he did not have his wallet at that time, so they knew he was lying. When Westerfield returned to his house in the early hours of February 5th, the police were already there waiting to execute the search warrant. He was not allowed inside the property, and as his vehicles were part of the search, so he was not allowed to leave in them either. He slept in his car across the street while forensic technicians went into the house. Inside Westerfield's home, the forensic examiners saw CDs and computer disks labeled with the letter X, indicating that they may contain pornographic material. They examined the discs and found there were possible child sexual abuse images depicting minors engaged in sexual activity with adults. A warrant was then granted for Westerfield's computer. Investigators also secured a warrant for his phone records to try and determine his location between the night Danielle vanished and the day he first spoke to investigators. While searching Westerfield's vehicles, they found two receipts for Twin Peaks dry cleaners showing that he had dropped off items before being questioned. They spoke with an employee at the laundrette, and she told them that Westerfield was a regular customer, but on that Monday morning, he was acting differently. He arrived at the laundrette in his motorhome early in the morning, dressed in just a t-shirt and shorts, and he was not wearing any shoes. It was cold outside and he told Julie Mills that he had just come back from the desert and wanted his bedding, comforter, and sports jacket to be cleaned. Later that day, he dropped off more clothes and asked for same-day service. The investigators also spoke with the storage yard owner who told them that Westerfield usually arrived with his son when he was taking the motorhome out. They found it odd that he not only left his forerunner behind, but also his trailer. They said that he had dropped the motorhome back at around 7.30 on Monday morning, just after he had been to the dry cleaners. A tow truck driver told the police that they had come to Glamis to pull Westerfield's motorhome out of a sand dune. Others in the area had noticed that he had parked it far off the road and too close to the dunes. After the motorhome was towed from the sand, the truck driver picked up Westerfield's shovel and ramps. Still, before he could hand them to him, Westerfield had driven off without saying anything. Westerfield agreed to take the detectives out along the route he claimed he took over the weekend, while everyone else on the street continued to search for Danielle. One of Danielle's classmates' mothers, Laura Shafroth, told the Union Tribune that her daughter was waiting for her friend to return. They lived in the same neighborhood, and Laura said it was anguishing how little they knew and understood about the situation. She told the paper, It's a parent's worst nightmare, not knowing where your child is. We've all lost sight of our kid for a minute. If that panic goes on for days, I can't even imagine. The father-daughter dance Danielle's mother had bought her a new outfit for was postponed in the wake of her disappearance. A Texas-based group, the Laura Recovery Center for Missing Children, joined the search effort while groups of volunteers were dispatched from a command center set up at a golf resort close to Danielle's home. 
Aerial searches were conducted over the Anza Borrego Desert, and ground searches took place throughout the area and in the canyons close by. Brenda and Damon Van Dam spoke to the media as the days went on without any sign of their little girl. Speaking to Larry King on CNN, Brenda said that she would cry into her pillow at night. During the day, they would tell news conferences to keep searching for Danielle. On February 8th, Danielle's parents spoke to the Union Tribune. They said they believed someone had taken Danielle from her bed while they slept. Danielle was a heavy sleeper. She sometimes sleepwalked, but they usually found her circling the hallway, and they didn't think she would have walked outside into the cold air. It was terrifying to think that someone could have come into their loft-style home, crept up the stairs without waking anyone, and taken a little girl from her bedroom. The media had been watching as the police focused on Westerfield. Once they confirmed he was a suspect, Brenda told the paper that they did not know their neighbor well and he had never been invited into their home. Despite a strong suspect in the case, the Van Dams were scrutinized by the public. Other parents questioned why a seven-year-old would be allowed to stay up until after 10 p.m. People pointed out that her parents had been up partying until the early hours of the morning, and they wondered how they didn't monitor the home alarm. What's more, their private lives were discussed at length by popular radio hosts and nosy neighbors. Rumors began to swirl that Brenda and Damon Van Dam were swingers and regularly engaged in extramarital sexual activity. When questioned about it, Brenda said, This is in no way related to the investigation. Nothing would get in between me checking on my children. It's a rumor. I don't know why people would want to be hurtful. Even with the prospect of a terrible outcome, the Van Dams said that they were praying that Danielle was being kept somewhere and that the continued media coverage and searches would pressure her captor to release her safely. Brenda said, I can't give up that hope because if I do, what's left? Douglas Pierce, the founder of a nonprofit group, the Millennium Children's Fund, offered a $10,000 reward for Danielle's return. He gained access to the Van Dam's home under the pretense of being a supporter. He was allowed to view Danielle's journals, filled with the musings of a typical seven-year-old girl. She wrote about goodwill, disagreements with her siblings and parents, and Mr. Pierce took the writing out of context and blasted the Van Dams for being concerned with their public appearance in media interviews. Parents of missing children are often the first suspects. It is advisable to seek advice from public relations experts to deal with the sudden influx of media attention when they are trying to assist the investigation and appeal for the public's help. Pierce had asked the San Diego police to remove the Van Damme's sons from their care, despite there being no evidence of any wrongdoing on their part. The Van Dams addressed his criticism of them, calling him evil for trying to start trouble when he had not been invited into their home by them. A radio host, Rick Roberts, spoke at length on his show, The Court of Public Opinion, about information he had received from a police source that alleged that the Van Dams had engaged in wife-swapping, and that what had actually happened in their house that night was different than what the media were reporting. The Van Dams had initially omitted details about their sex lives in initial police interviews until they realized the gravity of the situation after just a few hours of Danielle being missing. The police had spoken to their friends and learned that they had, in fact, been having relations with other people. But it was consensual sex with other adults who were aware that they had an open relationship in terms of physical encounters. 
The couple readily admitted this to the police in their interviews, and it was irrelevant to the inquiry. The media focused on this point while the search for Danielle continued, which only compounded the stress her parents were under. As searchers continued to scour the riverbed near Creekside Elementary and other areas of North County, including Elfin Forest, forensic investigators went through Danielle's bedroom for any evidence that would indicate that a stranger had been in there. Lieutenant Jim Duncan told the press that as time went on, they were less hopeful of the little girl's condition. With this, the search effort was scaled back, but the investigation remained the top priority in the police department. Sixty investigators were working on the case, and the detectives openly stated that they had no other suspects beside David Westerfield. Assistant Chief Steve Creighton said, We will solve this case sooner rather than later. We have a ton of evidence that we are meticulously going over. We are making progress. The Van Dams spoke at a press conference two weeks into the search for Danielle. Brenda told reporters that while she was pleased that the police seemed to be making progress, she said, We still don't have our daughter, and that is the most important thing. The wait for information was agonizing, especially as the investigation was focused just two doors down at the Westfields' house. Danielle's parents did not interfere and speak to the suspect out of fear that it would jeopardize the investigation. But Brenda pleaded at a news conference saying, Just please tell me where my baby is. It kills me that someone knows and it is not me. Mark Kloss, the father of Polly Kloss, who was abducted from a sleepover and killed in 1993, stood by to support the family as they went through something all too familiar to him. Mark Kloss said, They need to stay strong for their daughter. They are the generals in the war to bring their daughter home. After the initial interview between the detectives and Westerfield, the main suspect had retained the services of an attorney, Stephen Feldman, so the investigators had to rely on physical evidence to build their case. While the police seemed sure that Westerfield was somehow involved, many people who knew him couldn't imagine the man doing anything of the sort. His close friend, Wes Hill, spoke to the Union Times and said, Dave is a puppy dog, a real sweetheart. He is innocent of all this. I've known him 35 years. People who know him are 100% behind him. After the police had publicly announced that Westerfield had traveled through the San Diego desert on the weekend Danielle had vanished, searchers headed in that direction, scouring miles and miles of sandy terrain. One searcher said, It's a very large haystack and a very small needle. Dozens of police vehicles and news trucks lined the once quiet Mountain Road Pass, a nuisance to some, but solace to others. Wade Douglas from KOGO Radio said that one resident had told him she felt safer with the amount of people on the street. Douglas said that the woman had told him, I'm happy you're here. It's more sets of eyes in the neighborhood, and the droning of the TV trucks puts her to sleep. Other neighbors couldn't shake the feeling of fear. One neighbor, Patricia Erickson, said, It's like our whole reality's been shattered. There's this false sense of security here. That was taken away. The unthinkable has happened, like September 11th. On February 21st, the police returned to the Van Dam's house. They took apart Danielle's closet to try and recover more evidence. Unfazed by the constant police presence in their home, Brenda said, I don't care if they tear my house completely apart as long as they find my little girl. By this point in the investigation, almost 3,000 volunteers had searched the desert in San Diego 
distributed 8,000 flyers and 3,000 buttons, and the website set up in the first days of the search had received over 520,000 visitors. The following morning, detectives converged outside of Westerfield's attorney's office in Golden Hill and arrested him on suspicion of kidnapping and burglary. The arrest was prompted by the results of DNA analysis on trace amounts of blood found on Westerfield's clothes and inside his motorhome. Police Chief David Bejarano said that he believed more charges would be filed and told reporters, We believe, without a question, that DNA evidence links Mr. Westerfield to Danielle's disappearance. The news of the arrest came as a relief to the Van Dams and their neighbors. Brenda spoke to the press conference outside of their home after it was announced and said, We are very happy that the police have made an arrest. We were forewarned it was going to happen, but the fact still remains that we don't have our daughter. We need to continue searching for Danielle. Their sentiments were echoed by those living on the street. One neighbor said, I'm glad they got him, but where is she? Bring her home, for God's sake. Westerfield was brought to the county jail in San Diego and held without bond while he awaited an arraignment hearing. The news of the arrest spurred hundreds more volunteers to take part in searches across the desert on horseback, ATVs, helicopter, and foot. Searchers were told to be on the lookout for trash bags, freshly overturned dirt, blocked culverts, and odd smells. Rural roads and wooded areas along Interstate 8 were also searched. At the arraignment hearing on February 26th, District Attorney Paul Finkst announced that they would be filing a murder charge against David Westerfield. The DA said at a press conference, I must conclude that Danielle Van Dam is no longer living and was killed by her abductor. A misdemeanor charge of possessing pornography that depicts minors was also added to Westerfield's case. Danielle's remains had not been recovered despite the murder charge, and her parents spoke out following the arraignment to say, There are no words to express the anguish we feel as Danielle's parents and greatest admirers, but today was an important step forward in hopefully finding our daughter and making sure that this doesn't happen to any other innocent child. The Van Dams thanked the volunteers and spoke about how much they missed their daughter. Brenda said that finding Danielle was the priority, not only for her parents, but the community. She asked the public to adopt Danielle as one of their own and step forward to volunteer to help search for her and bring her home. On February 27th, a 10-person search team was sent to Dehesa Road, a back route from Coronado to the desert that Westerfield may have taken in an attempt to stay off the main roads. Private investigator Bill Garcia had dedicated his time to coordinating the search efforts in the desert, and six teams of 10 people were spread out across the rural areas of San Diego. Just after 2 p.m., the search party was preparing to leave the area when one of the volunteers, Karsten Heimberger, walked along a dirt track 100 yards from the Sweetwater River. The area was often used as a dumping ground for trash, shaded by oak trees. Beneath the trees, the heavily decomposed body of a naked young girl was found. Despite the level of decomposition, those who stumbled across the grim find could see strands of blonde hair on the victim's head, a plastic choker necklace on her neck, and a Mickey Mouse earring. With no other missing persons matching that description in the area, the district attorney quickly announced that they were confident Danielle Van Dam's body had been found. The San Diego County Medical Examiner, Dr. Brian Blackburn, arrived at the scene that night to make a provisional examination of the remains. 
Due to the location, a site typically used for dumping trash close to a river and trees, the area was heavily infested with flies. Lieutenant Duncan later said that the spot seemed to be a dump site for locals as it was full of trash and yard refuse. He said it was like a giant rat's nest as a result. Please note that the following paragraph contains graphic content, so please skip ahead 15 seconds if you would prefer not to hear the details. Animal predation meant that much of the tissue on the victim's extremities was missing, including the entire left foot and pelvic area. The skin was mummified and darkened, covered in insects. The body was transported to the medical examiner's office while forensic technicians processed the scene. They collected soil samples and other items that had been discarded around the area. The autopsy was performed the following day. Dental impressions would later confirm that the remains were that of seven-year-old Danielle Van Dam. Dr. Norman Skip Sperber, a forensic odontologist, examined Danielle's mouth and found four of her teeth were dislodged. One was later found in her mouth, but the others were not recovered. The missing teeth could be explained by decomposition or possible suffocation in that someone may have forcefully covered Danielle's mouth. No organ damage was evident during the autopsy. Due to animal activity, there was no way to check if there had been any sexual assault. Danielle's manner of death was listed as homicide. Still, the medical examiner could not conclusively provide an exact cause of death. They were able to rule out shooting or stabbing as there were no bullet or knife wounds, and there was also no damage to the hyoid bone in the neck, which would be indicative of strangulation. Due to the level of decomposition, it was difficult to say precisely when Danielle had been killed, but by analyzing the insect activity and stage of decomposition, the medical examiner believed she had died around the time she went missing. Danielle's heartbroken parents issued a statement when the autopsy results were announced. They said, With today's confirmation that our beloved Danielle will never again be physically present in our lives, we are experiencing the depths of sadness, loss, and grief which only parents who have lost children under similar circumstances can fully comprehend. These emotions are being tempered by an overwhelming sense of gratitude and closure. We miss her desperately, but find comfort in knowing that she is now safe again and at peace. The rat-infested dump site where Danielle's body was discovered was quickly cleared, and a makeshift memorial lay by the oak trees where investigators believe she had been for three weeks. A park bench was placed beneath the trees, surrounded by flowers and soft toys, a bright and colorful oasis amidst the harsh desert. The website that had been generated to promote the search replaced their appeals with a simple message that read, In Memory of Danielle Van Dam, 1994-2002. to By March 3rd, Mountain Pass Road was silent once again. The number of news vans on the street had reduced from over 20 to just one. The local playground, which served as a meeting spot for volunteers, was again filled with children who had been brought there to play in memory of Danielle. David Westerfield remained in isolation on the third floor of the San Diego County Jail. Upon his arrival, his fellow inmates had made it clear that child killers were not welcome. On the front page of local newspapers, they had crudely drawn nooses around his neck and called out to him from their cells. A sheriff's official at the jail told the Union Tribune, It was explained to him that the cows eat their own cud. 
When you have an inmate like that, if that guy gets sentenced to life imprisonment, it could be worse than death. And he would be living on pins and needles the rest of his life. There is honor among thieves, and child killers are considered the lowest of the low, even in jail. At the preliminary hearing on March 11th, more evidence was revealed, and Westerfield's attorney hinted at the defense strategy, which would be to implicate Danielle's parents were somehow complicit due to their private lives. As well as blood evidence, the crime scene examiners had discovered fingerprints and hair that tied Westerfield to the crime. The trial was scheduled for the summer as both the prosecution and the defense built their case. On the morning of March 16th, Hundreds of people gathered at Danielle's favorite seaside spot, La Jolla Shores Beach. A stage was set up on the mile-long stretch of sand as mourners huddled close beneath makeshift shelters and blankets to shield themselves from the cold Pacific winds. Danielle's parents and brothers arrived at the beach in black limousines. They made their way to the stage, which had been decorated with a colorful display of lilies and roses. Two portraits of Danielle stood on either side of the table near the purple and white urn that held her ashes. Danielle had been cremated at a private service earlier that week, and Damon Van Dam thanked the congregation for the outpouring of support they had seen for their daughter since she went missing. Brenda spoke about the milestones in Danielle's life that she would never get to witness and said, In one night, all of these precious moments were taken away. I feel that Danielle's life was lived to its fullest but she was taken away too soon. Danielle's friends, who learned about dangers in the world far too young, bravely spoke about how much they missed her and how much she meant to them. Dozens of doves were released along with pink and purple balloons in Danielle's memory. Brenda's friend, Veronica Valencia, said, It will never be fair that she only lived seven years on this earth, but her life here will never be forgotten. She has touched us all. For a while, the world stopped, prayed, and hoped for her safe return. Although she is no longer here with us, she will always remain San Diego's little angel. On March 21st, the father-daughter dance at Danielle's school went ahead. It had been postponed while the community searched for the second grader. With the harsh reality that she would never be coming home, fathers made more of an effort to be at the event. Knowing full well that Damon Van Dam would have given anything to dance with his little girl again. Damon and Danielle had been to two father daughter dances before. Each time she buzzed with excitement as she wore a dress and corsage, something Danielle no doubt would have done if she had made it to the third dance. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
On April 25th, the district attorney, Paul Fengst, announced that his office would seek the death penalty if Westerfield was convicted of murder. This contention was important when jury selection began in late May of the same year. During the voir dire process, where the prosecution and the defense could excuse jurors based on their answers to questions, many potential jurors said that they would be in favor of the death penalty in a case where a child was killed. A jury of six men and six women were sworn in on May 30th, and days later, the trial began. Because they were sequestered to appear as witnesses during the trial, Danielle's parents were not allowed to attend the opening statements. Jeff Dusick outlined the prosecution's case for the jury, and after observing an uncoiled hose in the yard of the only neighbor unavailable for questioning on the morning Danielle was reported missing, investigators believed that it indicated that the homeowner had left in a hurry. When Westerfield returned to his home, two doors down from where the little girl vanished, he appeared to be sweating, was overly helpful, and there were scratches on his arms and hands. As he was speaking to detectives, he told them a long-winded story about his trip to the desert, losing his wallet, and driving around aimlessly for the weekend. His story was suspicious to begin with, but once witnesses discredited his version of events, the detectives became more focused on him as their prime suspect. Physical evidence linked Danielle to his home and motorhome. A cadaver dog, Cielo, had alerted his handler at a storage compartment behind the passenger door while walking through the motorhome and also displayed an interest in the lawn chair and shovel inside the compartment. After finding receipts for the dry cleaners, Sean Soriano, a criminalist for the San Diego police, found three stains on the jacket that tested positive for the presence of blood. There was also a blood stain located on the carpet flooring inside the motorhome. They compared the DNA profile from the blood stains to Brenda Van Dam to determine if there was a link. And after Danielle's body was found, they tested it against her DNA. It was a match. Strands of Danielle's hair were found intertwined with dryer lint in his garage and in a sink. The strands were around eight inches long, which was consistent with the length of Danielle's hair after a haircut just a few days before she vanished. In the bathroom where the hair was found, the investigators also noticed that the window screen was pushed out, and there were binoculars that would have allowed Westerfield to see into the Van Dam's yard. Several fibers from her bedroom were found in his motorhome. The same fibers were also found on Danielle's body. A handprint was found on a cabinet inside Westerfield's motorhome, just above the bed. It was compared with prints taken from Danielle's bedroom, and there was sufficient ridge detail to provisionally provide a match. After Danielle's body was found, the latent fingerprint examiner for the SDPD, Jeffrey Graham, retrieved her mummified hands from the medical examiner's office and used embalming fluid to rehydrate them enough to obtain fingerprints for comparison. It was proven that Danielle had moved her hand across the cabinet inside the motorhome. Computer experts had also found a number of images and videos that could constitute child sexual abuse images on Westerfield's computer and on storage disks in his home. Dusick told the jury that the images had been organized, systemized, and labeled before warning them that they would be asked to look at the graphic images, many of which depicted minors engaged in sexual acts. While the state did not have to prove a motive for a murder conviction, evidence of child sexual abuse images was found on the defendant's computer. Prosecutor Dusick told the jury, Somebody dumped her body like trash out at DeJesa Road, 
and the evidence will show you who that is. Defense attorney Stephen Feldman outlined Westerfield's case. Feldman said that Danielle's parents were sexually involved with other women and couples, and that it was interesting evidence as to who comes in that front door, interesting as to who they allow in that door. He said it took six separate interviews for the full details of the Van Dam's private lives to be disclosed to investigators, and asked the jury to consider whether someone the parents had allowed into their home could have been responsible for Danielle's murder. Feldman said that the evidence found inside his client's motorhome could be explained by a situation where Danielle had been allowed to play, unsupervised, on the street. He posed the theory that Danielle might have snuck inside the vehicle while it was unlocked, and that maybe she had a cut or nosebleed that would explain the blood on the carpet. Feldman said, We have doubts as to the cause of death. We have doubts as to the identity of Danielle Van Damme's killer. We have doubts as to who left her where she remained. And we have doubts as to who took her. The defense attorney insisted that science would come to Westerfield's rescue as they intended to call a witness that would dispute Danielle's time of death. Damon Van Dam took the witness stand and introduced himself to the court. When asked how many children he had, he answered three, before quietly clarifying two. Damon recalled the events before Danielle went missing. He said that Danielle had brushed her teeth before reading to her younger brother and kissing her father goodnight on the last night she slept in her own bed. Damon admitted that he didn't tell the police about his sex life and the fact that he smoked marijuana in the initial interviews because he was embarrassed. He told the court, Since realizing the magnitude of the situation, I have opened my private life up and given every detail possible to try to get my daughter back and now to get justice for her. Brenda was also subjected to questions about her sex life and drinking and smoking habits by Westerfield's attorney. She admitted that she and her husband had slept with other people and smoked on occasion, including the night she was out, the night Danielle went missing. Brenda said that she had seen Westerfield at the bar that night, and he had bought her and her two friends a drink. She denied dancing with him or having lengthy conversations and said she left the bar at closing time. Brenda explained that while she was looking for the open door that had triggered the light on the alarm monitor, Damon was in the bedroom kissing one of her friends. According to the witness, it was something the couple had explored beforehand. After their guests left, they went to bed. The following morning, Danielle was gone. The defense attorney asked if they allowed Danielle to play unsupervised or if she had been dancing provocatively at the bar. This line of questioning indicated that the Van Dams had been irresponsible by swapping partners and smoking cannabis, something attorney Feldman advocated for pro bono in other cases. The people who were in the Van Dam house that night also testified. One of the women admitted to having sexual relations with the couple at a time when the children were not at the property. She also spoke about a strange encounter she had with the defendant. She was introduced to Westerfield at the bar and found him to be creepy. She said he didn't talk at all, he just kept watching them. The defense attorney had suggested that the type of people who would partake in couple swapping were dangerous. The witnesses laid bare the most private aspects of their lives to leave no doubt that it had nothing to do with Danielle's murder. The detectives on the case testified next. Detective Mora Parga said that she could smell bleach in the defendant's garage and his Toyota 4Runner looked like it had just been through a car wash. 
Detective Paul Redden, who conducted the first interview with Westerfield at the station, told the jury how Westerfield had used the word we when speaking about his movements that weekend, despite saying he had been alone on the trip. A recording of the interview was played for the jury. Witnesses who saw Westerfield parked in the desert said that travelers usually avoided that area because of the sand dunes. One camper said, Anyone driving out there with that size of a vehicle, especially at night, would not have driven that far off the main road, because you're guaranteed to get stuck. The lab technicians and forensic experts who had analyzed the evidence in the case spoke at length about the processes the samples go through in order to determine whether they match other samples related to the case. Links were formed between Danielle, her bedroom, Westerfield's clothing, his house, his car, and his motorhome. Images found on Westerfield's computer and disks in his home were displayed for the jury. He faced charges for possessing the indecent images, but they were also used to demonstrate, in the words of the prosecutor, what Westerfield had done to Danielle and what he did with her. The defense tried to lay blame for the possession of the images on Westerfield's teenage son. His son adamantly denied being responsible for downloading the pictures. What's more, the images were found on disks labeled with terms related to Westerfield's business. After the prosecution finished presenting their case, the defense began to try and place doubt on the evidence shown to the jury. They intimated that Brenda Van Dam had danced with the defendant while she was out that night, which explained the transfer of fibers linked to Danielle. Damon Van Dam had been excluded from the courtroom in the first week of testimony when he was seen trying to make eye contact with Westerfield. When caught by a sheriff's deputy, Damon said, I just want to let him know I'm here. The defense witnesses testified about Westerfield's habits of leaving his motorhome unlocked while it was parked outside of his home to show that Danielle may have entered it without his knowledge. They said there was no way of knowing when Danielle's fingerprints or blood had been deposited in the vehicle. They claimed that they had evidence that proved Westerfield could not have dumped Danielle's body because he was being watched by the police from the moment he got home. They introduced entomological evidence to bolster the claim. There are various methods of determining a victim's estimated time of death, from measuring the victim's body temperature, the rate of rigor mortis observed. For remains that have begun to decompose, a medical examiner can use a process called forensic entomology. This is the study of insect activity in a corpse to determine the time that has passed since they died. If maggots are present on a corpse, the developmental stage of the maggots can be used to give an estimated time of death. Maggots are the larvae of flies. Soon after death, flies will be attracted to any open wounds or orifices on a body, and they will lay eggs. Over a period of time, these larvae will feed, molt, and pupate, which is the process before they emerge as adult flies. Each of these stages has identifying features such as the color of the insect, the breathing holes present in a shell, or an empty shell. By examining the insect activity on the victim's body in this case, the defense expert believed that Danielle's body had been dumped 10 to 12 days before it was discovered, at which time Westerfield had an alibi that was strongly supported by the countless number of people watching his every move. The expert witnesses for the defense, forensic entomologists David Faulkner and Neil Haskell, testified that they believed Danielle's body had been dumped between the 14th and 21st of February. 
To rebut this, the prosecution called a forensic anthropologist, William Rodriguez. Rodriguez's expertise was in determining the time, manner, and cause of death in cases where the victim's remains were highly decomposed. He testified that Danielle's remains had been mummified, which can occur when human remains are left in warm, dry conditions. It is especially prevalent in the remains of child victims. Mummification slows down the typical decomposition stages in which a body goes through processes such as the breakdown of enzymes which release gases and the flesh and organs decay. Rodriguez told the jury that insects would not be able to penetrate a mummified corpse because the skin is dehydrated, except after the tissue had been exposed to animal predation. Many variables are involved in the decomposition process, such as the weather, humidity, insect activity, and if the body had been moved. Based on his analysis of Danielle's autopsy, William Rodriguez believes she had died between four and six weeks before she was found. The earliest possible date would have been the night she vanished, and the latest would have been the day after she went missing. Forensic entomologist Madison Lee Goff agreed with Rodriguez's findings and said that entomology could not be used to determine how long someone had been dead. It could only specify how long their body had been available for insect activity. After days of technical testimony from the experts, the prosecution began summing up their case. Jeff Dusick told the jury that the state believed that six-foot-two David Westerfield had snuck into the house while everyone slept before Brenda got home from the bar, which explained the first light seen on the home alarm monitor. They alleged that Westerfield's kidnap attempts were interrupted when Brenda and her friends arrived at the property and that he left with Danielle after everyone had gone back to bed, explaining the second light seen on the monitor and the partially open door downstairs. The prosecutor said that Westerfield was a pedophile who was fixated on child pornography, and this deviance led him to take a little girl from her bedroom and leave her naked in the dirt like trash for animals to devour. He said that Danielle's death was likely horrific, but she had left clues as she struggled. He said that if someone could ask Danielle who killed her, she would reply, I've already told you. I've told you with my hair and where you found it. I've told you with the orange fiber that you found on my choker and where you found it. I've told you with the blue fibers that were on my naked body and where you found it. I told you with my fingerprints and I told you with my blood. The prosecution's version of events was that Westerfield had taken Danielle to his house after abducting her, where the neighbors had seen his blind shut tightly. The next morning, he wrapped her in something before putting her in his Toyota, explaining the fibers that were found there. When he got to his motorhome, he moved Danielle again, which transferred more fibers. It was believed that Danielle was alive in the motorhome when she left her prints on a cabinet by the bed. It was in the motorhome that she was killed, explaining the blood found on Westerfield's clothes and the carpet of the vehicle. After disposing of her body, he attempted to destroy any evidence linking him to the crime, cleaning his vehicles, laundering his clothes, and creating a fictional alibi. The prosecutor listed the desperate tactics employed by the defendant after he came under suspicion, which included blaming his son for the indecent images found in his possession. Defense attorney Feldman seized his last chance to place doubt in the jurors' minds. He told them that the case against Westerfield was built on illogical guesswork, and that there was no way that someone unfamiliar with the Van Dam's home could sneak in and take a child without being noticed, 
especially not a man who had been out drinking that evening. Feldman said, There's too many holes. There's no smoking gun. There's too many explanations. They can't put it together. Somehow, Dave Westerfield, all six feet two of him, sneaks into the bedroom of Danielle Van Dam, doesn't make a sound. Feldman tried to explain away most of the biological evidence in the case by saying that Danielle had sold him cookies at his home before and that her mother had apparently danced with him that night. Feldman said that the Van Damme's sex life had brought dangerous people into their lives, people the defense contended could have killed Danielle. He told the court, I'm not casting aspersions. This is a lifestyle they chose to lead. So be it. But there's risks. When you invite the world in, you don't know what you bring. We don't blame the Van Dams. We don't blame the parents. We don't think they recognize the dangers of the lifestyle they lived. The prosecution called out the defense during their rebuttal, citing the allegations against the Van Dams. He said that Feldman was using falsehoods, misrepresentations, and total distortions in his final charge. The presiding judge, William Mudd, had ruled that only one verdict would be available to the jury. The defense had asked the jury to be given the option to consider premeditated murder, but Judge Mudd said that the only option would be felony murder, which is the killing of someone while in the commission of a felony. In this instance, kidnapping. This meant that the only way David Westerfield could be found guilty was if the jury were convinced that he had kidnapped Danielle and subsequently killed her. The case went to the jury on August 8th. David Westerfield showed no emotion as the verdict was announced. After nine days of deliberations, the jury found Westerfield guilty on all counts. Danielle's parents were too overcome with grief and relief to comment. As the special circumstances of the crime meant that David Westerfield was eligible for the death penalty, the same jury would be tasked with recommending whether Westerfield would be sentenced to death or life in prison. Police Chief David Bejarano spoke after the verdict was announced to express his pride and gratitude that justice had been served. He said, I am very gratified and relieved. I also am relieved for the Van Dam family, the community, and the department. We will always remember Danielle. The quality of the investigation from the collection of evidence to the testimony of our people was first rate. In the penalty phase of a trial, aggravating and mitigating factors are presented to the same jury in order for them to make a decision on whether or not to recommend that the convicted killer be sentenced to death. The aggravating factors submitted were that David Westerfield had been accused of an indecent assault of a minor before, although he had not been charged. The victim in that incident was his niece, who was under the age of seven at the time it occurred. She testified that she had been sleeping with her sister and cousin in an upstairs bedroom while her parents had a party downstairs. During the night, she woke up to find Westerfield with his fingers in her mouth, pressing against her teeth. She said that she had bit down on his fingers until he left her alone and went over to her cousin. She said she watched what he was doing and saw him adjust his shorts before he left the room. The victim told her mother that her uncle was in her room and, quote, was being weird and it bothered me. She did not elaborate out of fear. Her mother spoke to Westerfield about it, but he claimed he had heard a commotion upstairs and saw that one of the girls had their foot caught in the other girl's pajamas. He said he had just separated them before leaving the room. In his interview with the police on the first day he was suspected of killing Danielle, Westerfield mentioned the incident to Detective Redden when he was asked if there was anything in his past that would suggest he would abduct a child. 
Westerfield said, I was accused of molestation. That's always upset me, and I've never told anybody about that. The prosecutor said this incident and the allegation that followed taught David Westerfield a lesson. Dusick told the jury the lesson was, if you do something like that, they're going to tell, if they live. Victim impact statements were given by those who knew Danielle. Her parents spoke about the little girl who was learning to play the piano and dance. She loved to read to her brother and write in her journal. She laughed when her father would pretend to go limp as she hugged him as tightly as she could. They had tried to make her bedroom into a happy place instead of a crime scene. They moved their son's gaming console into the room, but her parents said they both went into the room just to cry or to try to feel and smell Danielle again. Their surviving children, Derek and Dylan, had been deeply affected by Danielle's death. Her younger brother had reverted to behaviors typically seen in younger children and could not sleep alone. Her older brother had become more introverted and suffered from emotional outbursts. Danielle's teachers spoke about how curious, caring, and compassionate she was. Amy DiStefani, who had taught Danielle in kindergarten and first grade, said, She wanted to make sure that nobody else had their feelings hurt. She got along with everyone. The defense offered mitigating evidence and testimony to support their plea for leniency in sentencing. Feldman told the jury that David Westerfield was not the worst of the worst and that he had a life history of doing good. Evidence of Westerfield's contributions to the engineering field was presented by his co-workers and peers, who said he played a vital role in the development of medical and security devices. Westerfield's friends and family members also spoke. One witness was his high school girlfriend, who testified about his character, although they had not spoken since the early 1970s. Others said that he was a kind and helpful neighbor and friend who was considerate and protective of his own children and other children. His children spoke about the role he played in their lives and how much they loved their father. After the testimony was completed, the prosecutor told the jury that David Westerfield had nothing in his history to explain what he had done. Dusick said, look at what he had, look at what he had in life, look at what he destroyed, look at what he utterly obliterated. The prosecutor spoke about the journal Danielle had been writing in. He said that she would never get to finish it. There were no more chapters coming. Dusick said that Westerfield had taken Danielle out of her own bed, in her own house, away from her blanket, her stuffed toys, her family, and her innocence. He told the court that Danielle's death had not been easy and that she had died terrified and absolutely alone. On September 16th, the jury returned with a recommendation to execute David Westerfield for the kidnapping and murder of Danielle Van Dam. Brenda Van Dam told the Union Times that they had been prepared to accept a sentence of life in prison or a death sentence because either outcome meant that Westerfield would never be able to hurt another innocent child again. They thanked the jury, saying, In our eyes, love conquered evil. We are especially grateful to the men and women of the jury. We have great respect for you, your dedication, your endurance, and for your service. The evidence and images you were subjected to must have been heart-wrenching. You had an incredibly difficult job, and we thank you for doing it so well. We don't know what powers our angel has been given with her new little wings, but we know that she will take special care of you. After the penalty phase of the trial, it emerged that David Westerfield had been moments away from signing a plea deal when Danielle's body was discovered. 
Westerfield had permitted his attorneys to discuss a plea where he would serve life in prison in exchange for a confession and helping police locate Danielle's body, but he lost the opportunity when searchers found her. A day for Danielle was held at the Sabre Springs Recreation Center on what would have been her eighth birthday in September 2002. The event was full of fun activities for children. The Danielle Legacy Coalition, which had been set up to promote awareness, crime prevention, and protection for children, gave advice to parents on how to keep their children safe. In 2004, the overpass along I-8 in El Cajon was dedicated to Danielle Van Dam's memory. The Van Dams also successfully filed a civil suit against David Westerfield to ensure he would never be able to profit from his crime by selling his story. They received compensation which went toward their son's education and to pay for therapy they had since Danielle's death. David Westerfield was sentenced to death on January 3, 2003. At the sentencing hearing, Brenda addressed her daughter's killer and poignantly said, I ask you why. Why did you not let her go? Why didn't you drop her off in a safe place? If you had done so, she would be with her family now, and you would not be facing death. You have to tolerate the memory of her death. I cherish the memory of her life. Prosecutor Dusick had reminded the court of Westerfield's own words when he was questioned about Danielle's disappearance. He had told the detective, Somebody who does this type of crime ought to be taken out and shot immediately. David Westerfield has appealed his sentence twice, failing both times. He has continued to proclaim his innocence in letters to friends, claiming he was framed for murder. According to Westerfield, the only reason he had child sexual abuse images on his computer was that he was collecting them to send to Congress to highlight what could be obtained online. When the letters were published, the district attorney told the Union Times, He's singing a different song now than he did when he wanted a plea bargain in return for showing us where he had dumped Danielle's body. He knows full well that his attorney was involved in plea negotiations on his behalf, and for him to now say that he didn't do it is ridiculous. It also emerged that Westerfield had indicated he wanted to take his own life while he was being questioned. When he brought detectives out on his supposed route through the desert, he said to Detective Mark Kaiser, why don't we just end it right here? Give me one of your guns. You'll get what you want, and I'll get what I want. He had also asked detectives to leave him alone with their gun during the interview on February 5th. He continues to proclaim his innocence from death row at San Quentin State Prison. It's terrifying to imagine that someone could sneak into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night while their family members slept in the next room. The thought of an intruder being able to lift a sleeping child from their bed and out of their house is something that would disturb anyone. While the majority of child kidnapping cases are committed by someone known to the child, the harsh reality is that a number of children have been abducted from their safe havens by strangers. Children like Jacqueline DeWallaby, Polly Kloss, Elizabeth Smart, Jessica Lunsford, Kirsten Hatfield, Donna Sue Davis, and Jennifer Shewitt. It's estimated that approximately 61% of child murders are committed by the child's parent or parents. When a child is murdered, the parents are often the first suspects. They are typically ruled out early on in the investigation. While Brenda and Damon Van Dam were fortunate enough to be ruled out as suspects almost immediately, they still suffered an enormous invasion of privacy when the intimate details of their habits and relationships were exposed to the world. 
Two decades on from the tragedy that forever changed their lives, they continue to advocate for child safety in Danielle's name. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.